it's not about, again, creating your quote unquote ideal child. It's about creating safe senses of permanency for children in need, who children who deserve that and need that. And so I think that you don't want the placement to disintegrate. Last thing you ever want when we're talking adoption, we're talking about lifelong permanency, we're talking about sustainability. You want to be sure about the commitment, right, for yourself and for the child. But you also need to understand that it's about accepting a child that is in need of permanency rather than sifting through who you think might be the perfect fit. There's so many kids out there that need a home and need that sense of permanency. Hey there, I'm Crystal Blue and welcome to Flourishing in Color, a place for conversations between ordinary ladies with the hope that our perspectives allow you to gather meaningful insights that expand your worldview. Some of our experiences may be the same, others may be different, but when we listen, lean in, and learn, we will create a flourishing world in color. Okay, y'all, I am so excited that we are here for part two of three of our adoption series. So if you haven't already, please stop and listen to part one, which is episode two, Flourishing Through the Adoptee Experience. Last week, we talked about the adoptee narrative, how we center adoptees in their own story. And today we're going to be talking directly about the adopting process. So what we learned so far is that adoption is rooted in grief and loss and trauma. And while adopting families may see it only as a wonderful event where they choose a new family member and add joy to their lives, adoptees have to navigate balancing this series of losses and gains, losses of birth family, losses of choice, losses of people they know with the gains of a new, hopefully loving family. In this episode, Amy and I want to push you beyond just considering the bare necessities of what an adopting parent needs and think about how to put your adoptee first in each step of the process. So before we jump in, I wanted to clarify about the four main types of adoption for those who don't know, and those are the four we're kind of going to be working around today. The first one is adoption through foster care. Now, these are children that have been taken away by Child Protective Services, and some of them are still in contact with their birth family, and their birth family is still trying to be reunified with them and are working through the steps to get their children back. And other children are what they call TPR'd. TPR means termination of parental rights. And that means that those families have lost the legal right to that child and that child is up for adoption. That is what we mean when we talk about adopting from foster care. And those are managed through what we all know as CPS, Child Protective Services, even though it may be called differently in your city or state. The next one that we want to talk about is private domestic adoption, and this is generally where we're going to see infants. So when you are looking or watching a movie about somebody adopting an infant from a hospital and like knowing the birth mom, that is what we're talking about with private domestic adoptions. And that's really the only way you can get a child from the hospital. And those generally tend to run a higher price tag than foster care adoptions, especially for many reasons that we'll dive into through this episode, but a couple we touched on last episode, such as race or health of the birth mother affecting the price tag of that baby. And those are run by private organizations, just like international adoptions. And so international adoptions are adoptions that are 
with children from countries abroad other than the U.S. And those private organizations you can work with, they sometimes work very closely with the government, sometimes they work on their own. But regardless, that process is going to take a little bit more time and a little bit more energy because you have to secure a visa and citizenship for your child to come back. You have to work on traveling back and forth, work on the government in that country, and there's just a lot to unpack there. And the last one that is not always talked about but is definitely one of the main types of adoption is kinship or relative adoption. Relatives such as aunts, uncles, grandparents, or someone in their community may adopt that child as a kinship adoption. Okay, so I also want to say that the best practices and the things to keep in mind we speak about today are kept broad just to keep all types of adoption in mind. This is why pre- and post-adoption therapy for couples and adopting parents is so, so important, especially if you can find a therapist that is an adoptee themselves. We'll dive a bit more into what that looks like in this episode, but for now, let's buckle up and hop into part two of this adoption series. Hey guys, we are back here again with Amy Wilkerson. I am excited for today's episode just because I really love practical tips that we can take home and really implement. I love learning like knowledge, but I don't think that there's anything that can be exchanged for just best practices and tips and tricks. So um, Amy, last week we covered your ethnic roots and background and For anyone who forgot, Amy is a transracial international infant adoptee, but as we talk about the adoption process, I wanted to see if you could expand a little bit more about the type of adoption you were involved in. Yeah, thanks for having me back, Crystal Blue. I so enjoy this conversation. So I was born in Chile. I was a closed adoption, which um, basically means that no contact is um, engaged with adoptive and birth family. And that is pretty standard for international adoptions for a lot of reasons, and especially the era from when I was adopted, adoptive parents, just to share a little bit about their background. So they had been involved with a private agency in Wisconsin, and they um, had attempted to do, I think it was like three or four domestic adoptions that last minute fell through. And then... uh, they were pretty much done with the process and ready to give up because they were just having all this disappointment. And last minute, the social worker called and said, hey, would you guys ever consider international adoption? And they were like, huh, we've never really thought about it. And they are like, we just had a baby born um, in Chile who is being placed and um, is, needs a home. And my parents were like, yeah, great. And then from there, it just kind of everything fell into place. And here I am. (laughs) That's awesome. Okay. So before we get started, I wanted to say that we're going to cover what I call like the five phases of adoption. Again, like in my mind, these are the five phases and best practices for each one about how to put your adoptee first. So um, some of these you may have heard, some may be new, and some you may have like internal resistance to when you're listening. And I think it's important that when we naturally react against new information, we ask ourselves why that is. That reaction may not always be a bad sign. Sometimes it means that it's an idea that directly confronts your privilege. And this is why the motto of this podcast is to listen, lean in, and learn, because I want everyone to just be humble enough to take the hard idea 
ideas and lean into their uncomfortable feelings in order to learn. So, um, Amy, do you have anything to add before we start? No, let's dive in. Okay. So the beginning of this entire adoption process for anybody jumping in, which is, this is where I'm at right now. It's just adoption research, like figuring out which kind of adoption you're going to do, whether it's like domestic, international, private, and then um, figuring out an organization that you want to work with. So what do you think are some best practices we can think of for this very first stage? Yeah, so there's so much to consider. And I think that when we talk about best practices, there isn't a perfect formula to follow because no two families entering the adoption process are the same. Their motivations aren't the same. And no two adoptees share the same story of relinquishment or removal from their home. So when we talk about best practices, we need to remember that each situation is so unique and needs to be addressed that way. So, for example, when we look at international adoption, many countries have stopped international adoption and closed their doors. There's so many reasons for that, right? So there's anything from there's a rise in domestic adoptions within that country and so, or wanting to preserve cultural identity for the kids, or over time, there were a lot of unstable and abuses of power um, where a lot of birth families were getting scammed into giving up their children and children were trafficked into Western countries. Um, For example, in Chile, when I was born, during the era that I was born, that was happening. Other countries like Cambodia, we've seen that, a lot of countries. So there's a lot of reasons why international adoption has been closed. When we look at domestic adoptions, things are very different there, too. So we need to take a hard look at our foster care system. uh, And we really need to understand what is the motivation behind why people are wanting to adopt, right? So for example, for every, in this country, for about every 40 to 50 couples that want to adopt, there's about one or two adoptees that need placement. And prices for children based on race or based on health of bio mom can determine how much a child costs in a private agency. So for example, on average, a white child costs anywhere between like thirty-five and forty thousand, depending on agency and lawyer fees and all that. Where a black child might cost around eighteen thousand. There's a huge discrepancy in cost of children. Um, so for starters, starters, just understanding why you're adopting is so important. Because even within those things that I just said, are, oh, there's a lot to consider, right? Um, so, like for example, if you're adopting internationally, what country are you adopting from? Why are you adopting from that country? Why are the children in that country in orphanages or why are they, those children being um, relinquished or put it, being put up for adoption? Is the agency that you're going through a practicing best practices? Um, these are like really important things to understand because in a lot of com- countries, there's institutions or orphanages. But what we know, we talked about in the last podcast, is that 80% of kids who are in orphanages um, have at least one living parent. So are we adopting children for our own personal gain or are we adapting to minimize trauma in children? If we know that they have one living parent, why aren't the efforts going towards family preservation? So is your agency transparent? Is your agency ethical? Um, Are they supporting child child trafficking? Up until the 2000s, we've still been seeing this in our country um, with agencies. So working with agencies that are really, really transparent is important. And then even within our foster care system, um, we hear the term foster to adopt 
a lot. I'm sure you've heard Mm -hmm. that before. But what we need to understand and remember is that the very first goal in foster care is always reunification with bio family. Always, always, always. And a TPR, a termination of parental rights, is extremely hard. Um, It happens, right? Children are adopted from foster care. But that is not always the goal. The goal is always for reunification first. And so if you go into it with wanting to adopt, which a lot of people opt for trying to adopt foster care versus private agency, just because it's so much cheaper, but then is your desire going to get in the way of best outcomes for that child? So the goal is because reunification is the goal. The goal is to co-parent with bio family, but are you going to not be as engaged in that relationship if your goal at the end of the day is adoption. So really, really understanding the why behind you adapt is so important because ultimately you don't want to do anything that would sabotage the best interests of the child, whether it's domestic or international. I love that. I love everything you covered, especially um, we started the whole process to get licensed to foster back in 2018 Mm. before I got surprised with my first pregnancy. Mm. And that was one thing that was really drilled into us was that the ultimate goal was family reunification. Mm -hmm. And that was also hard because, you know, there is a little bit of you that feels a little bit judgmental maybe about why is this kid in my home? And there were a lot of emotions, I think, to sift through before we even ever got placed with a child. Mm. And so I can only imagine how much more complex those are when you have that child living in your home but still trying to put the best interests and remembering like you mentioned last week that having bio family in their lives is so so critical to their development and just to their mental well-being in most Mm -hmm. cases (laughs) I wanted to ask you you mentioned looking for organizations to work with that have transparency what are some signs we could look for with organizations that are being transparent like on their website or interviewing them what are just some things to keep an eye out for so I would keep an eye out for an uptick in adoptions from a particular country so now there's a lot of things through the Hague Convention that have been put in place to make sure that um, adoptions are a lot more ethical even from when I was a baby, um, there's a lot of more precautions. So a lot of this stuff is uh, has I want to like just through treaties has been addressed. But when we're looking at things, whether it's international or domestic, I would just say like an uptick because if there's an uptick in cases, the question is why is all of a sudden is there something in that country perhaps or we've seen this before in other countries like in Cambodia. Um, there was the majority of kids in the 90s, I want to say it was, in Cambodia that were placed in institutions were older or had terminal illness or a lot of other um, health problems. But all of a sudden, there were infant adoptions coming out to the West and babies. And what was happening is there were children that were being stolen and trafficked from Cambodia. And so there was a huge uptick that was not representative of the kids that were actually in care. And so just being able to look at stats, you know, trends, um, you know, what is the history of the people who are leading these organizations? What are their intentions? What are their values? Do they align with yours? Um, What do they do to try to um, work on family reunification and family preservation? Is that something that they value? 
you know, we talked last week about adoption really shouldn't be the goal. The goal should be helping families be able to sustain themselves. And um, so I think that those would be the values that I would want to know if I were looking at an agency, a private agency. Awesome. Okay. So after you kind of decide what agency or what type of adoption you're going to go with, the next step is usually applying for that organization, working through and doing your training and eventually coming to the home study process. So could you give us a little bit of an overview about what the home study process is? A social worker or a licensed worker will come out to your home before any placement can occur. They're going to ask you a bazillion and one (laughs) questions and they're going to be extremely personal and there's reasons for that. And then they're going to assess your home for safety. They just overall want to make sure that, there's nothing that's a blatant, obvious concern that would be problematic or detrimental to, to maintaining a placement. So when we are going through, when adopting parents are going through this home study process, what are some ways, even though that whole process really just focuses on the adopting family and their home and the home they've created, what are some ways that they could still keep their adoptee yeah, in mind? Yeah, so I think that there's a couple things. So Again, going back to why you're adopting, everybody wants the baby. Like everybody wants the baby or the cute little toddler. Mm -hmm. There's so many older kids in care, whether internationally or here in our country, that are in need of that sense of permanency and that sense of belonging. And they deserve that. So asking yourself, why is it that I'm so committed to this idea of a baby uh, versus maybe an older child? And really kind of working through that. I think that that's just one thing that I think that we really need to focus on because everybody seems to want the baby. And there's reasons for that. And I can appreciate that. But that's one thing. I think another thing is just being really honest about your life experiences and not hiding anything from your worker. I think that a lot of times parents think, oh, I've lived through my own trauma or I've experienced my own set of circumstances that might not paint me in a favorable light, but the more honest and open you can be with your worker, the better, because we are all human and we've all lived through things that have helped us build our character or that have helped us see, you know, given us a unique worldview. And it's not so much what we've been through, but it's how we've learned from those situations that can actually offer empathy and compassion for whatever we're faced with in the future. And our adoptees, these children have obviously been through a lot, no matter how old they are. You remember, a baby doesn't mean that there is no trauma. And so just being able to use your own life experiences to build compassion and empathy, I think will help serve your adoptee in the long run. I love that. I think that one thing that I learned from you and um, Copyway Counseling is the fact that there are options for pre-adoption mm-hmm. therapy for couples to really assess their motivations and um, where they're coming from when they're adopting and really to work through a lot of difficult questions. Um, do you want to expand a little bit about what pre-adoption therapy is? It's a lot like mar- premarital counseling where before you commit to something long-term, you want to just make sure that all of your um, ideologies and your your skill set to move forward is there, right? So you, you're really preparing for the adoption long-term. You're not just preparing for that initial placement. Just because I'm going a little bit out of order here, 
is pre-adoption therapy something that couples should be looking at when they're first researching organizations or while they're in the home study process? Like when would you suggest that? Yeah, I don't think there's really a time that is too early. If you're really actively involved in the, like, you know that you are going to open your home to adoption, around the time I think the home study is being complete or in your home study process, because placement can take a really long time or placement can happen really quickly. There's never really a rhyme or reason, depending on, you know, international versus domestic, depending on the situation, depending if it's an independent um, placement or not. So, There's so many different factors that can play in. So once you start the home study process, I would probably at that point recommend pre-adoption counseling. I think that it is important to talk about theologies. For us, we want to start it sooner rather than later just because I am an (laughs) over-preparer. I want to know like what we should be working on in our marriage. I want to know what things we need to be thinking about if there's literature, books, or ways we need to further educate ourselves. Like I want to know that if I'm going to be adopting, I'm not taking it casually that I'm realizing that this is a lifelong commitment and that it is um, in a lot of ways, obviously a bigger undertaking than just having a biological child because you do have to be prepared and willing to. And I think that was one thing that always concerned me. I, um, I guess I'll get real here. After my last daughter, Maya, I was told by my doctor that I'm not allowed to have any more kids. And even having the two children I did have was really difficult because of the fertility Mm -hmm. issues I had. And so I know that having fertility issues is one reason that a lot of people do come Mm -hmm. to adoption. It's this idea of adding a member to your family. And we're not going to sit here and say that that's like not noble or selfish or whatnot, but it is something that even if you are adopting an infant, it doesn't erase everything that that child's been through. I think that's what I loved that Amy covered last week was that even when children are adopted as infants, there is a certain amount of trauma that happens. Did you want to, I guess, expand anything on that, Yeah, Amy? I guess just that's part of something that would be really great to process in pre-adoption counseling and ongoing for a long time because – Typically, people tend to try for bio kids before they turn to the adoption process in that situation, obviously. And then when people find out that they are struggling with fertility, there has to be this mourning process through that. And we have to be honest about that. You know, it's okay to say, I want to be a mom or I want to have the experience of being a father, right? But if you cannot do that biologically, there it's okay to grieve. You need to grieve through that what that expectation is because you are going to be, if you then open your home to the adoption process, it's going to be a very, very different experience not just from like the psychosocial aspect of everything, but from the biological aspect of everything too. Little things like, Oh, you know, you have my eyes or you have your dad's hair. Oh my gosh. You walk like you're, grandpa, you know, all those things you aren't going to be able to tell that child. And so they might seem silly or they might seem small, but having to grieve that entire mentality is really important. And it's something that I think like any grief process will come up over the lifespan. Um, And so just like keeping that in check, I think is really important when you are choosing to adopt because of infertility. Okay, so I want us to shift gears. Um, Let's say your home study process went great. You got the gold stamp from Mm -hmm. your social worker. Everything's good. You've been approved 
to start being placed with a child. So can you give us a little bit of an idea of like what expectations are once you completed your home study? Like, do you look for the child yourself? Does the agency give you options? Like what does that yeah, normally so it depends. look like? So sometimes in, this is not in all states. I don't even off the, off the top of my head know all states where this is possible, but I do know that in some states, birth family or birth mom can literally say, I want the, this child to go to X family. And it's just as simple as that. You can negate the whole agency process um, and agency fees, lawyer fees, and just pretty much do like go to court and do a, a, a an adoption. Um, but that's not in all states. A lot of states do require that agency step. And so but then it also depends, you know, if you're doing an international adoption or if it's a child that you're adopting through care through our foster care system. So it kind of depends on which route you're going to through. Um, it might look just a little bit different. And what are some ideas that we should be keeping in mind when we are in the process of being placed with a child? Like, do you just take the first child that you're offered? <laughs> do you sift a little bit through and see how that child will fit into your life and how you'll fit into that child's life? Like what should people be keeping in mind? Yeah. So another lifetime ago, I was a, I worked with a, a private agency that was doing therapy, but we were contracted through the state. So my office was literally right next to the social workers who were doing licensing, who were moving children from home and it was really interesting because a lot of foster parents would put on their application, you know, like they would have racial preference or they would have age preference or they would have gender preference. And that was a, a huge red flag for licensing because it's not about, again, creating your quote unquote ideal child. It's about creating safe senses of permanency for children in need, who children who deserve that and need that. And so I think that you don't want the placement to disintegrate. Last thing you ever want when we're talking adoption, we're talking about lifelong permanency, we're talking about sustainability. You don't want, um, you know, you want to be sure about the commitment, right, for yourself and for the child. But you also need to understand that it's about accepting a child that is in need of permanency rather than sifting through who you think might be the perfect fit. There's so many kids out there that need a home and need that sense of permanency. Licensing workers, part of their job is to, um, part of the reason why they ask you so many questions and part of the reason why they do such a deep dive on your values and all of that is to make sure they're hopefully the goal is to make sure that they help place a child with you that they where they feel like the placement is going to be strong and solid and where the child is going to be most supported. That's really, really interesting. And I feel like that's probably going to go down as one of the best practices that we can all learn from this is again, like it's about creating the safe space for the child. It's not about who you want to add to your family, how you want to grow your family and shifting that focus off of ourselves um, as the privilege holders, decision makers, kind of the ones who are holding all the cards in this mm -hmm. game of adoption and shifting it to prioritizing mm -hmm. the child that's in need. And like you said, it really makes us challenge like our mentalities and why we're going into this, if it's for our own gain or if it's, again, to create a home mm -hmm. for a child that needs it. Okay, so... Let's pretend next steps happened. You've been matched with a child. 
what comes next in terms of bringing your child home and the initial transition okay, process? Okay, so this is a little bit of a soapbox for me, and I can fully own that and claim that, but it makes sense to me. So a lot of times when we're talking about adoption, we're talking about those young children, we're talking about those toddlers. Unfortunately, the reality is that older adoptions just are not as common. They do happen, of course. They're just not as common, and there's a lot of reasons for that. But regardless of the age of your child, creating that sense of safety and that sense of routine is so important. So for little kids, especially really young babies, infants, or toddlers, their initial uh, attachment to a bio their, to their caregivers has been severed and there's been a trauma that has occurred. And so for me, a lot of times adoption workers will say, if it's an infant, hold, have designate one caregiver, one caregiver, and have that caregiver hold that baby for two weeks. Yes, you're going to be excited. You're going to want grandparents to come over. You're going to want aunts and best friends and neighbors and everybody to just swoon over this baby, right? You're so excited about this child. But if you think about it, this child just bathed in the body of a woman for nine to 10 months, has attached to their smells, their scents, their sounds. And so two weeks compared to that nine months of gestational phase is very, very, very short. And so now that that child has already experienced this trauma and that separation and the inconsistency, to be able to kind of patch that up and just help them really attach to a caregiver again is so important. But I, that's what I, I, I hear a lot from workers. I would say, right, a lot longer than two weeks. I would say at minimum a month. Uh, baby carry, hold that child all the time, co-sleep. I mean, I would just dive into all of it just to do whatever you can on the outside to to really attach to that, let that kid attach to, to you and get that sense of safety. And then just keeping it really low key. Children in general just get overstimulated quickly. And now this child might be hypervigilant just with caregivers coming and going, trying to understand their new surroundings. Maybe they're adapting to a new language. Maybe they're adapting to new foods. I mean, all that stuff might sound small to us as adults, because we go through so many transitions throughout the day with ease, but for a small child, that can be very, very overwhelming. So in that initial process, I say the more boring your life, the better, and just teaching and helping that brain reframe itself into understanding that, okay, I'm safe here. I know what to expect here. I know who my safe people are here. I know where my safe spaces are here. And even as a toddler or a baby, they might not be able to verbalize that, but they will instinctually feel that within their bodies. And that's just setting them up for best practices. I love that. I want you to give us another, I guess, tip about no matter the age of the child that you're adopting, whether they're like over 10 or under three, how long should you wait until you're, you start introducing other people into their lives? And then how should you start introducing other people into their lives? Because I know that a lot of people get really excited. They want to have like people waiting for them <laughs> at the airport with signs and like show the kid like, look at this big community you have here, right? But like you said, that can be really overwhelming, especially in a state of transition. A lot of these kids as we know from trauma, can be in this fight or flight mm -hmm. mode, not knowing where they're going to settle, not knowing if they can even trust mm -hmm. their adopted parents yet, right? So again, like how long should people wait until bringing in and introducing other people? And then how should they take that process of introducing 
their community to their child yeah, and their so child again, to their community. Yeah, so this goes back to kind of just knowing your people and knowing your child and knowing yourself, right? Are you a type of person who's good at setting boundaries or is that something that you struggle with? Um, is it easy for you to tell your family and friends, you know, no, we just need some space? You know, I think that for those of us who've had bio kids, I think that, you know, on a very, 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 very small level, it's kind of like, do I want visitors in the hospital or not? You know what I mean? Like, do you want that those first couple moments just Mm -hmm. to be sacred and just you and your little family? Or do you want literally the whole village (laughs) to be there? Uh, And part of part of that is just kind of knowing your own situation. You know, what is where is your child coming from? What you know, did they have? a ton of caregivers and inconsistency was it just the initial placement you know and then is your family going to be respectful are your family and friends and community going to be respectful of those boundaries well we also know that it really does take a village and it's okay to have people around it's not that you need to dig a hole or go into a dark cave and never show this child off you know that can also have detrimental effects in that as well because we also want caregivers to be uplifted and supported and so I think it's about finding a balance where you know, people can be respectful of what you need as becoming a new parent to this child, what this child needs to not get overstimulated. But it's also about that, the comments. And, you know, is your, if, if even if your child's older at the time of placement, you know, if you're a transracial family now, um, this might be the first time that your family or your friends are around another person of color. So making sure that that language is respectful and accepting and then being ready and prepared to be an advocate and ally for your child if it's not that's something else that a lot of times that transracial families will talk about is that in our home we know what language is acceptable but once we get to at that thanksgiving dinner you know uncle so-and-so or grandma or grandpa will say something that's a racial slur not realizing the impact that it has long term and so just really making sure that you are ready to be that ally for your child and sit and understand what your boundary is going to be around that because all of that goes into creating safety for your child not just that time of placement but throughout the lifespan Yes. And if you are somebody who, like me, is nervous about having to make all these decisions and really wanting like some hard concrete just plans, right? Color coded (laughs) Excel sheet plans. These are things that people can talk about with pre slash post adoption counselors. So as we're talking about therapy, um, what should it look like when families are starting to offer therapy services to their children that they bring home, looking and interviewing therapists, all of that jazz, like especially if it's an infant adoption, at what age do you start? If it's an older adoption, do you let them choose their therapist or let them choose whether or not they go? Yeah, so what should I this look like? Part of this also goes back to kind of knowing the dynamic in your family and knowing kind of... <sighs> Part of being, it's, it's a hard balance with adoption because just because a child isn't speaking about their adoption doesn't mean that they're not thinking about it or trying to process it, right? But that also doesn't mean that we want to just be completely hands off and say, we're going to just wait for them to come to us when they're ready because we don't know what conclusions those children are coming to on their own and we want to be able to be there to normalize language and to validate feelings and so the adoption process can feel really isolating in a lot of ways and we want to minimize that for any child we never want a child to feel like they're on an island all by themselves so part of I think knowing when a child is ready is kind of just using your assessment as a parent 
Um, sometimes play therapies can just be really helpful because a lot of their trauma is pre-verbal. And so they don't have that language or they're just too young to have that language, but they can act out how they feel by like hugging a teddy bear and explaining if that feels good or not, or just doing some simple play therapy things. And that can just be helpful for parents kind of getting an understanding of, you know, how are they relating to their emotions or whatever it might be. A lot of times kids can be more hypervigilant or more anxious or things that we might not necessarily correlate with their adoption. So that can be just something to look out for. Um, But when it comes to looking for a therapist, an adoption competent therapist is really, really important. There's a lot of adoptees around the country that are clinicians. We can talk about trauma, we can talk about grief and loss all day, but the nuances of it within the adoption uh, framework um, is something that is super important to have a clinician that understands that. A lot of times clinicians, although really good intentioned and really amazing clinicians, if they don't truly understand the impact of attachment or relinquishment or adoption trauma, sometimes they miss really key things or moments that otherwise could be worked on in an adoption, a more adoption competent space. Um, So that's something that I would look for is honestly like an adoptee clinician or just somebody that is really well-versed within adoption trauma and with relinquishment and grief and loss. Thank you for that. I wanted to continue this because the transition home for an adoptee just begins that transition for the rest of their life. And I don't think that there's ever really a stopping point at which like we can say, oh, Mm -hmm. my adoptee is acclimated enough, hands (laughs) off they're free, like they're fine. So what are some ways that even like, let's say you adopted five, 10 years ago, what are some ways that you could still continually be supporting your adoptee through the rest of their life? Yeah. Even through adulthood? Anytime we go through a milestone, right? We all tend to get nostalgic. We all tend to just have these like really intense emotions of just, wow, I can't believe I made that. And for an adoptee, I think that that's really compounded because There's so many questions that we have about who we might have been or where we have come from or, you know, maybe missing our biological family, whether we've met them or not. And wanting to be able to share those experiences with people that we love is so natural. So for adoptees, when they go through experiences throughout their life, they might feel, oh, I wish my birth mom could be here or I wish I could share this with my birth siblings, my biological siblings. Um... Even if they don't know them, it's still a love and a a feeling that can be very real. And so moving throughout the lifespan can be complex because not only are we just living and trying to figure out who we are, like everybody else (laughs) in the world, but it's like a compounded element with adoption and trying to navigate that grief and loss that's constant um, in the adoptee identity. Um, And so I think that, like, for example, getting married, even simple questions like, oh, would I have married the same partner? Obviously not if I was in birth country, right? So all these things that can be triggered and just having safe places and spaces to process that. And then when we give birth to children at 18 years old, we don't just say, you know, okay, bye. We do in the sense of like, you're an adult and you're free. But the hope is that that child continues to return home from college if they go to college or just throughout the lifespan, you know, if you have kids, you know, now you're the grandparent. So for adoptees, it's not like at 18 years old, they're just gone either. We hope that that sense of permanency continues throughout the lifespan in any way. And so just being there to be able to help navigate your adoptee as they go move through their milestones is so important, just like it would be for a biological parent, just with those nuances are so important to understand. And then on top of that, if a child does want to go into a reunion, 
um, if they do want to search for biological family or if they already have an open adoption and want to be more connected to their biological family, that's another piece too of how are you going to navigate that. Um, and that's a big piece that adoptive parents can struggle with um, and feel threatened by um, at times when it comes to their adoptee managing and navigating that relationship as well. Thank you. I want to bring up one resource that I know about for people supporting their adoptees through the process. And I want you to toot your own horn a little bit here because Amy is writing a book that should be out next fall. I'm so excited about it. She's so excited about it. So can you tell us a little bit more about your book, what it's going to be and how it'll help adopting families support their children? So I've always wanted to create literature for little adoptees. When I was little, um, there just wasn't a ton of resources that helped just validate my thoughts and feelings. And so I just really wanted to give that um, to younger adoptees. So I'm working on a series and the first book comes out this fall and it's just a very simple um, children's book that talks about what adoption is in general in a validating and normalizing way for little adoptees. And then in all of my books, my goal is to have it be interactive in some way. And in this particular book, there's a caregiver guide. So just a very simple outline of how to talk about the hard stuff with your adoptee and how to just open up those conversations. Um, Like I said, a lot of little kids don't always say, hey, I'm talking about this or I'm thinking about this. And so kind of giving parents this book is a tool to kind of just help give their kids some of that language behind some of those big universal feelings that almost all adoptees can relate to. I love that. I love that it ties directly into your work at Copeway Counseling. And I love that you give us all these like free little tidbits of wisdom on your Instagram, Grow, Heal, Blossom. And everybody who isn't already needs to go follow that, especially if you are somewhere in the process of adoption, because it brings up a lot of really tough questions and really encouraging thoughts to either repeat to your adoptee or to tell to yourself. Um, So everyone needs to go follow that. And can you tell us for those who are listening, who want to get in contact with you about your adoption services, how they can do that? Yeah. So Instagram is always a really accessible place at Grow Heal Blossom, like you said. And then www.growhealblossom.com is my website. And all my contact info is on there. And that's probably like the easiest way just to get get access to me. And uh, remind us where you are licensed. I am currently licensed in Wisconsin and Texas and soon to be Arizona. And you do virtual as well. The One of the beautiful things about right now is that everyone has expanded their borders of who they can see and where they can see them, right? That is so true. Yeah. Right now I'm offering only teletherapy services and I hope within the next year to have a brick and mortar space here in Arizona. Okay. So we covered your social, we covered your book, we covered so much. But one thing I have to have to remind everyone is that if you have questions, um, more questions than we've covered, because of course there's so much more to talk about and so much more to consider than anything we could cover just here. Please, please give us those questions via DM on Instagram or the little um, voice message link on the show notes or on our Instagram. That way you can drop us a little voice memo that we can play in our Q&A episode 
or we can read aloud your question. We want to know what you want to know. We want to know what questions you're thinking of, what you're curious about, what things you want clarification on. And we are so excited to talk about that in part three of this three-part series, the Q&A episode. Okay, so we covered a ton today, but what is one final question you want listeners to contemplate? Yeah, great. So I think that if you are in the process of adoption, or even if you've already adopted, what has inspired your decision behind your adoption? I really love that. Figuring out your why is something I've been working on really hard, just analyzing my own personal motivations. And I know it's something I'm going to be thinking about until we start the process in like a year or two. Okay. I asked this last week. I don't know if it's changed, but I'm going to ask it every episode. So I have to ask it today. What song is currently your jam? Yeah, so I'm going a little bit old school here, back to like 20, I want to say like 13 or 14, but there is a Latin artist named Nikki Jam. I don't know if you know who he is, but there was a song called Travesuras. I don't know if you know this song or not, but it was a song that actually my biological brother shared with me, and we used to rock out to it all the time, and so I've been working out to that song a lot lately. I love that. I'm going to have to check it out. Okay. Thank you so much for being here with me. I cannot wait for part three of our little three-part series. Yes. I'm super excited. I can't wait to see what people are thinking or what kind of questions they have. So that'll be super fun. Okay, guys, I hope you learned just as much as I did. My favorite thing about talking to Amy is that I could have seven conversations with her in one week and I would still learn something new each time we talk. So I cannot wait to have her back for our Q&A episode in two weeks. I hope you guys are thinking about any questions you have. You don't have to be adopting yourself in order to submit a question or have adopted. It's open to anyone with anything adoption related. So send us those questions, those voice memos, those DMs. Let us know what you're thinking so that we have something to talk about. And if you haven't already, please go follow at Flourishing in Color on Instagram so that you can keep up to date with all of our new episodes, new guests, Instagram takeovers. And I just hope to see you guys over there as we chat and talk and to learn more about you guys and you learn more about me. I also want to let you guys know that we are going to be shifting the podcast from every week to every other week, just to make it a little bit more sustainable for myself and the guests who are coming on here. I want to keep bringing you guys high quality content, but I don't want to burn anybody out. So we'll be seeing you again in two weeks for Amy's Q&A episode. If you haven't already, please follow, like, subscribe, uh, rate, whatever it is uh, for whatever platform you're on. I know that there's a lot to keep track of, but especially if you're on Spotify or Apple Podcasts, it allows other people to find us and our small growing community that we have here. I'm so excited that you guys have joined me for episode three. I cannot believe it's three already, and I hope you'll come back for episode four. I am going to end today's episode with another poem as we do with each episode and today's is by another adoptee. It's titled Inner Soul by Chloe Lauren America Berger. My inner identity has been discovered as my shadow has traveled to a new place. My hair is still dark, I am still short, yet something has changed, it's different. A new piece of the thousand-piece puzzle found. I know who I am by looking above. I am Latina, 
I am Jewish, I am Mayan. Looking at the stars from the window, looking at the stars from Antigua, my identity has chased itself in one big universal spin, and I can be both parts of the day. I can be the sun or the moon, I can be a bird or a fish, I can be Latina or Jewish, but what I have come to discover, what I have come to realize, is that in reality, I am only one thing. I am unique. I am me.